Welcome to The God Solution, a place where we discuss solid evidence for the Christian faith and interviews with leading Christian apologists. Each week, you'll be encouraged in your faith and equipped to defend it and share it in your daily life. You can find out more about The God Solution at GodSolutionShow.com. Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst. And I'm Grant Percet. And we are thrilled that you're tuned back in for the second part of our interview with Dr. Craig Blomberg, world-renowned New Testament scholar who's authored somewhere around 50 books on various New Testament-related topics. And he is a professor at Denver Seminary. You can find out more about him at denverseminary.edu under the faculty page. We're talking to him today about his new book, The Historical Reliability of the New Testament, Countering the Challenges to Evangelical Christian Beliefs. I encourage you to go pick up the book. It's a great read. Pick it up as soon as you get a chance. Well, anyway, here we are with the second part of the interview with Dr. Craig Blomberg. Dr. Blomberg, you mentioned that undersigned coincidences, like we find in Luke's Acts accounts, rarely appear behind works of fiction. What do you mean by this, and how strong an an apologetics argument can be made for undersigned coincidences? Uh, a woman named Lydia McGrew, who is the wife of a well-known philosopher, Tim McGrew, uh, is coming out with a new book on that very topic uh, in 2017, and and I highly recommend it to people who are interested in uh, in following up on this. Uh, Acts, uh, and, and we're talking about Luke's writing of, of his second volume here with this question, uh, Acts does not uh, mention at any point uh, Paul's letter-writing ministry apparently was not part of his purpose. He's showing uh, the early apostles on the road engaged in all of the activities that they do as they evangelize different communities. And yet you can take, um, and, and countless writers have done over the centuries, uh, you can take Acts and the letters uh, attributed to the apostle Paul and compare them and create uh, a very consistent chronology of the entire life and ministry of Paul uh, with not too many loose ends. And you can fit uh, where each of those letters probably falls uh, into the ministry without even relying on any of the early church traditions like we have to when we're talking about the Gospels. You can find uh, events that uh, appear both in Acts uh, and in the letters uh, in terms of details of Paul's conversion, uh, in terms of uh, the places that he traveled, uh, down to uh, little details uh, like uh, being let down uh, through a basket uh, Uh, in uh, a hole in the wall in Damascus in order to escape from his enemies there. And yet uh, the letters of Paul, with the possible exception of the last couple, uh, were all written before the book of Acts, written before 62. Uh, And so it's not that uh, Paul said, now let me pull off the shelf here, the scroll, my friend Luke, recently finished and make sure I make mention of some of the things that he wrote about me. Um, (laughs) He's doing this before that ever happened. Uh, If you go to the apocryphal Acts of the Apostles, um, the books that are second but mostly third, 
fourth and even fifth century, uh, you will often get maybe a very small or minor point of contact with something we know about an apostle from uh, the New Testament, and then simply fanciful legends that uh, go off in all kinds of directions, but there's nothing to compare and contrast uh, with the New Testament. Uh, they're not talking about the same periods of time. They're not talking about similar kinds of activities. Uh, that's what you typically get when somebody fictitiously uh, embellishes the, the story of an individual. Makes sense, and I'll look forward to that book by Tim McGrew. That should be very, very... Yeah, it's his wife, Lydia. Oh, it's wife, Lydia. Okay, yeah, looking forward to that, definitely. Um, so I, I was reviewing some of your material on the historical reliability of the New Testament. I was on YouTube. So I'm going to paraphrase something I heard you say, and I thought it was a great argument. I think you were speaking to the idea or the challenge that the New Testament authors were biased, and I thought you made the comment that people who care often most faithfully report, and it's those outside of that caring group that would, would have a big interest. Um, they're the ones that do the revisionist work. Am I, am I getting that correct? Right. Uh, the, the famous example that a lot of writers have used is uh, um, the Jewish historians after the, the Holocaust, after World War II, who uh, uh, were very passionately committed that uh, it was all possible something like that never happened to their people again, and so they made sure to uh, to go to extreme lengths to uh, chronicle the lives and deaths of uh, of countless uh, otherwise uh, unknown men and women who uh, we'd never uh, learn about after the fact. But uh, I mean, you can you can apply it just to uh, family genealogy. Um, there be no reason for anybody outside of the, the Blomberg extended family to uh, pay attention to my family tree. Um, we've had a few people uh, who have been quite interested in that in my family, and so uh, I'm able to uh, put together some, some fairly detailed information thanks to their efforts. Uh, why would anybody else... Uh, outside of, uh, of our family uh, have any interest in doing that. Um, and so there is this, this uh, recurring notion that Christian evidence to uh, the foundation and early events of Christianity uh, must somehow be inherently suspect, must be uh, biased, must be off-limits for the objective historian. And yet, that's not an approach that historians use with, with anybody else. If for no other reason, than then usually the people who are not interested in a character or a movement are not interested in preserving information about them. So all that you have uh, comes from their supporters. Now, it's certainly true that uh, uh, somebody can become very biased and skew the evidence in favor of uh, a person that uh, that they admire or revere. Uh, but it's certainly not uh, what most commonly happens. It's not the, the natural uh, process of historians or biographers. 
And so uh, I, I think we need to put that argument to rest. <laughs> no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, I like your example about the family tree research. I've done some of that myself. But, um, sir, if you are related to someone like, you know, Bonhoeffer uh, or Napoleon, please let me know. I'd be interested in that. <laughs> okay. So on that note, I got to just uh, ask kind of a, a similar or accompanying question. So what about the other side's bias? So when we look at the evidence for the resurrection, even from Christian sources in the Gospels and in the New Testament, it's overwhelmingly strong, even by modern historical um, criteria. And then we even see corroboration outside of the Bible. You're familiar with all that. And again, for our listeners, you could refer to our interviews with Dr. With Dr. Habermas, Dr. Lacona, um, even Dr. Evans a couple years ago did a show where we talked about the evidence for the resurrection. And uh, I would, en- would encourage you to familiarize yourself with those arguments. Now, somebody like Ehrman would come to those arguments, and, and Jesus interrupted, I believe, and say something to the effect of, yes, the, the evidence is, is overwhelmingly strong, and no, none of the counter-arguments are probable. I think he actually says, are the counter-arguments probable? Absolutely not. But then he'd say, but they're more probable than a resurrection because resurrections don't happen. So here his anti-supernatural bias is right. forcing him away from the historical evidence. You definitely talk about that in this newest book, the issue of miracles and the problem of uh, just writing them off because of an anti-supernatural bias. So we just talked about how does the Christian bias affect the reliability of these documents. What about the secular skeptics' bias in writing them off? Yeah, no question about it. Um, I would refer people uh, to yet another scholar that, for all I know, you may have interviewed as well, Craig Keener, who has a remarkable uh, two-volume book from just a few years ago uh, from Baker Academic simply called Miracles. And uh, in the opening chapters, he deals with some of these uh, classic philosophical questions. What, uh, what you've cited uh, Ehrman is saying is uh, David Hume's famous argument from the 1700s that uh, no matter how strong the evidence for a, a miracle would seem to be, uh, the evidence against it, it by definition is always stronger, uh, and he stopped short of saying, because we know miracles can't happen, uh, but simply that based on our experience, they're so improbable or unlikely that uh, that kind of experience uh, uh, has to uh, uh, be looked on with suspicion. But then uh, Keener Chronicles, oh my goodness, uh, probably more than 500 examples uh, he groups them by continent uh, from uh, living memory that are documented, uh, that uh, were public, that occurred in the context of uh, a public concerted Christian prayer, and uh, only documents those that uh, uh, were never in any way reversed, uh, were not in any way temporary. Uh, I've had the the privilege to uh, uh, see as well as participate in uh, uh, Christian uh, settings where uh, demons have been cast out of people, where uh, people have experienced immediate uh, physical healing. And I have uh, close friends and relatives uh, whose uh, 
uh, integrity is impeccable, um, uh, one of them being my mother, uh, who uh, who have experienced what, um, if we don't want to use the word supernatural, we can at least say there is nothing remotely available in the scientific world uh, to explain what happened, uh, but uh, it is completely in sync with the kind of events that uh, the Bible records and that we typically call miracles. To, to uh, look at all of that evidence and then to say, no, it's always more probable that uh, there's some other kind of explanation is, in my opinion, one of the largest biases that, that anybody could ever have. Mm. That makes sense. Um, so you mentioned something about your mother had an experience. Are you willing to share anything about that? <laughs> um, what are the odds that it gets back to her? Um, probably <laughs> small. <laughs> um she uh, is now uh, 86 and uh, living in a retirement community. But uh, seven or eight years ago, when uh, um, she was still living on her own uh, as a widow, uh, uh, and her uh, legs were not functioning like they uh, had when she was younger, uh, she often walked with a cane um, in uh upper Midwestern community that gets a lot of snow and ice in the winter. Uh, she uh, had the experience. Uh, she's a lifelong believer, but does not come from uh, anything remotely charismatic. Uh, would not have said that she ever experienced anything she would call a miracle or had any of her close friends ever experienced anything that, that she would call a miracle, but she would certainly have said she was open to believing they could happen. And as she went to take the trash uh, out to uh, the garbage can in the back alley of the house I grew up in from uh, uh, across the sidewalk, across our backyard, um, she said she whirled around because there had to be a man in the kitchen with her. And she was stunned because she heard an audible voice telling her, take your cane. Never had an experience like it before, never had one since. And there was no one there. And she walked around the house some. To, she thought, sure, that uh, a neighbor that uh, she'd given a key to must have somehow gotten in. Um, but there was no one there. Uh, and it was simply a voice that said, Eleanor, take your cane. And she said, I just assumed it had to be God. So I got my cane and... and once again, I had to take the trash out, and for a second time, she heard the voice saying, now take your cell phone. <laughs> she looked again, and there was no one there. And, uh, okay, she took her cell phone, <laughs> gingerly made her way to the door, wondering if something more was going to be said, but that was it. And as she uh, walked to the, the back, uh, realized there was some black ice on the sidewalk that uh, she could not see from the house and probably uh, would have slipped and fallen if she didn't have her cane. And then uh, after she dumped the trash, uh, uh, our garage faced north, so it was the last place ice ever melted, uh, realized that she got herself in a, a precarious position where even with the cane, she didn't feel like uh, 
it was safe uh, with the way her knees were to uh, to try to walk on her own. And so she pulled out the cell phone, called a neighbor who came over and, and helped her and got her back into the house. In the grand scheme of things people face in life, that's comparatively trivial. Um, why does God pick an occasion like that uh, for for something to occur? Uh, can we prove it was God? No. Um, you decide a, a, a better explanation. <laughs> <laughs> wow, wow. Thank you for sharing that. Appreciate it. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution. You can go to godsolutionshow.com for more on The God Solution. We have had Dr. Keener on, and there are so many examples of supernatural phenomena. Not to mention other examples. You know, Dr. Habermas has been on talking about near-death experiences and the objectively verifiable ones. It's just not possible to conclude that supernatural phenomena do not occur. or We can't say that, and um, I think it's a bad argument. I think it was uh, Geisler and Turk that talked about Hume's argument, and they paraphrased saying, you know, if anything isn't true by definition or empirically verifiable, uh, commit it to the flames. And they said, well, the statement itself is neither true by definition true. nor empirically verifiable, so it must be committed to the flames. <laughs> and I think that anti-supernatural bias uh, does deserve to be committed to the flames, for sure. I would agree. Wow. Hey, sir, if I can throw a challenge at you, um, what is your best argument for the historical reliability of the New Testament books? Right. That's like uh, asking uh, the uh, parents with uh, 10 kids, which one do you like the best? Um, (laughs) You're you're welcome to share more than one if you'd like. (laughs) Well, I've been asked it before, and my inclination is to go in a different direction than I take in the book. Um, because it is. It, it's like saying, well, um, where do I start and, and where do I end? I think there are a whole raft of uh, um, historical arguments from the uh, reliability of oral tradition in the ancient world to the integrity of the witnesses to the date to the age to the timing to the position that everybody was in to tell the story but a different kind of approach that that uh, often gets overlooked is that we have an unbroken record from uh, the earliest days of the Christian movement to the present, of uh, a steadily growing uh, number of people that today uh, numbers perhaps more than two out of the world, seven billion people, uh, whose lives have been uh, transformed for the good um, because they have believed and acted on this story. Now you say, well, there's almost two billion Muslims, but then you have to ask, what kind of book is the Quran? Or quote the statistics for how many Buddhists or Hindus or Confucians or any other religious group there are in the world. And then you have to ask, what what kind of books are their holy books? Um, And yes, you can 
find uh, some historical details about Muhammad from the Quran. You can find some historical details uh, about uh, the Buddha from the Buddhist scriptures. But it is only the Christian Bible of all the sacred scriptures in the world that is arranged as a narrative beginning at creation, ending with new creation, that tells a story. A story of how God created all that exists, is one day going to recreate perfectly all that exists, do away with the horrific evil that we so often face today. And in between, it tells the story of human sin and uh, a people that God raised up, the people of Israel, who would eventually give birth to the Messiah, Jesus, who would be the, the provision to resolve the human condition. And uh, whether you want to call it sin, whether you want to call it evil, whether you want to call it shame and disgrace, uh, everybody knows how messed up the world is. And uh, that in and of itself doesn't make Christianity right, but it does make it unique. Uh, as the only what to philosophers would call a meta-narrative, uh, a story that claims to be able to explain and embrace all other stories. Um, and it has worked for uh, a couple billion people. I think mm -hmm. that makes it worth very serious attention. I think those are fantastic reasons, and I, I like what you say about the unbroken record from the earliest days to the present, the transformed lives, and that the Bible is a, the explanation of all other explanations. So w would you agree that we could characterize the uh, case for the New Testament as a cumulative one, that we wouldn't just point to one? but a, Oh, a, absolutely. A, okay, okay, good, good. Awesome. So just a, a quick recap. The case for the historical reliability of the New Testament is becoming more or less probable in the modern days. <laughs> well, it depends on who you ask. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm sure the, the skeptics, the uh, Richard Dawkins of the world, would say, uh, oh, it's becoming more improbable every day, and only deluded people think otherwise. <laughs> um, but, only deluded uh, historians with PhDs and 50 exactly. books and those deluded people. Um, but uh, what, what is really fascinating, um, I know the, the average person, even the average lay Christian, uh, has neither the time or in many cases uh, the interest to go into uh, all of the behind-the-scenes historical and archaeological and literary and... and uh, uh, other forms of research uh, and uh, everything that comes out in little ways supporting this or that uh, passage or account in scripture uh, rarely ever makes uh, news because news by definition is something that's novel, something that's uh, strange, something that's countercultural, um, or something that has uh, immediate effect. Uh, on a large group of people like uh, um, political campaigns. 
so uh, if all we do is get our news uh, uh, from uh, what the Internet sources put before us on a daily basis, then about once every five years we'll get some new supposed challenge disproving something out of Scripture. Um, and oftentimes we'll never get the follow-up story that uh, a year later, after very painstaking, careful research, it turns out that it didn't disprove anything. Um, but what is really happening behind the scenes is the amount of evidence, and there are big books about the Old Testament as well uh, that do the same thing, is, is mounting continually that the kinds of things that can be tested uh, short of some spectacular discovery, there's no way to test whether Jesus said exactly what we have him saying in the Sermon on the Mount, because nobody had tape recorders. But uh, the kinds of things that can be tested uh, again and again and again, with rare exceptions, are uh, proving to uh, be exactly what all the other evidence points to as well. And uh, it's a story that needs to be told. Well, thank you for telling it, and thank you for doing the hard work so that we could tell it. Uh, I'm so thankful, again, for, for your work in this field. So, You're very welcome. In addition to this new book, The Historical Reliability of the New Testament, Countering the Challenges to Evangelical Christian Beliefs, and I would also strongly encourage people to pick up Can We Still Believe the Bible? Both are available at Amazon. Are there any, are there any other critical resources that you would suggest people uh, go out and buy today? And uh, feel free to mention your own, because uh, they need to hear those, too. <laughs> well, certainly, if, uh, if a person's main interest is in the Gospels, then uh, a book that's available, uh, it's called The Historical Reliability of the Gospels. Mark Roberts has done uh, a very nice work called uh, Can We Trust the Gospels? And then going to a, a, a still more popular level, and uh, a well-known uh, Christian apologist, uh, former atheist Lee Strobel's Case for Christ, where he interviews uh, a variety of scholars. Uh, the, the first two chapters involve uh, interviews with me on the kinds of things we've been talking about this morning. And one of the nice things about the Case for Christ is that there is even, uh, I think it's called a teenage edition. Mm -hmm. One of my daughters, in fact, at the church uh, that uh, we were attending when she was a teenager was tickled because they decided to use that and got to see my name a couple times there. <laughs> Where can people find out more about you and your work? Any websites you want to refer them to? Um, very easy to go to Denver Seminary at uh, denverseminary.edu and uh, click on faculty and uh, you can see uh, I try to keep updated where I'm traveling and speaking. What a lot of people have found helpful is we have something called the Denver Journal uh, which is really a, an online journal of book reviews, but it also contains bibliographies. And uh, especially the Old and New Testament departments, uh, at least once a year, update our recommendations of solid books, academic books on uh, every part of the Bible and a lot of specialized topics. And uh, All right, so any last words that you want to leave with people before we get off the air? If... Some blockbuster news magazine publishes just before Christmas another skeptical story. Um, be skeptical of it and uh, realize that uh, there's nothing new under the sun that would call into question the historic Christian faith. There are always new spins on things, but uh, 
Don't believe the first thing you see. Don't believe it if it looks like it supports Christianity either. If you Google uh, Red Sea chariot wheels, you can see <laughs> completely fake pictures of what look like rotting wooden chariot wheels deep underwater, and there is it is completely urban legend. And I've caught friends putting that stuff on Facebook. I know it's <laughs> it's sad. So uh, don't believe the first thing you see. Uh, test the spirits, and uh, you'll discover that uh, there are all kinds of great reasons for Christian faith. Well, Dr. Blomberg, thank you very much for being on with us. Thank you for your work. I also want to thank you for your hard work. I definitely can hear the sincerity from you. I mean, not just with this interview, but when I listen to you, whether it's YouTube or reading your books, I can I can just see that you're a sincere Christian, and I very much appreciate it. Well, you're work. very gracious. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed the second part of our interview with Dr. Craig Blomberg. You can get both parts of this interview at GodSolutionShow.com. While you're at it, check out more about Dr. Blomberg at denverseminary.edu under the faculty page and pick up all of his books at Amazon or wherever you buy books. I hope that you are walking with Christ. If you haven't yet taken a step to put your faith and trust in him, why wait another day? Say, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are, that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again to give me new life. Please be my Savior and Lord. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll tune back in next week for our interview with Dr. Gerald Schroeder. It'll be incredible. Until then, go to GodSolutionShow.com, share the show with your friends, let us know what you think about the show, and always remember that an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. You've been listening to The God Solution. We hope that you were encouraged by what you heard today and are better equipped to share Christ this week. You can get the audio from today's broadcast and all the past God Solution shows at GodSolutionShow.com. Thanks for listening and being a part of The God Solution.